All right, we are going to talk about the Gospels tonight, and we want to be as uh, clear as we can about the word. Make sure we understand it. Euangelion, the Greek word euangelion, which I know you know if you've been around our church. Ou is a prefix that we use in a lot of English words today. One that I often illustrate it with is the word eulogy, the uh, logia. The second half of that is word, someone who stands up at a funeral and gives a good word about the deceased. That's a eulogy. When we talk about the gospel, we are talking about the euangelion, like the California Angels or Los Angeles Angels or Anaheim Angels. What are they called now? They keep changing their name. Our baseball team, the Angels. The messengers, if you talk about a messenger, but if we talk about the euangelion, we're talking about the message, the good message, the good news. We hear that all the time in our everyday conversations become an adjective and a noun in all of our modern speak. But uh, what we're talking about clearly is when we use the word gospel in a Christian context, we're talking about the good news that Christ has provided uh, salvation. And clearly, I think it should be stated every time we talk about in the 21st century that we're clearly talking about not salvation from loneliness, not salvation from purposelessness, but salvation from the penalty of our sins. And when we talk about the gospel, that's what we mean. But that's not what we're talking about when we use the appellation of the title for the books that we're going to study, or at least begin to study tonight, the gospels. When we talk about the gospels in our New Testament survey, of course, we're talking about the first four books of the New Testament. And just to be as pedantic and simple and elementary as possible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we have four gospels, four gospels, four books that tell us of the message of Christ, who is the Savior, who saves us from the penalty of our sins. Four Gospels that tell us of that. Now, they're portraits, and I wouldn't call them biographies per se, although we sometimes say that. Biography, would we'd expect a lot more information about the life of Jesus. Uh, we don't have anything but uh, birth narratives in two of the Gospels. We have uh, one scene of a 12-year-old that we studied in Luke many, many months back. Uh, and then most of it centers on the last three years of his life. So uh, this is really a portrait of him doing his saving work, of him accomplishing what he came to do. Lots of theories as to why, why God gave us four Gospels. Uh, we can't answer that definitively, but we do know it's the most important story. Uh, everything, as I said last Sunday, that leads up in the Old Testament to Christ and his crucifixion, uh, clearly we would expect that the Bible is going to give us a uh, full-orbed picture, a stereophonic view, if you will, with that clash of uh, idioms and analogies, a quadraphonic sense of who Christ is and what he did to save us from our sins. Uh, some have suggested because in the Old Testament we talk about facts and situations being confirmed by two or three witnesses that Christ uh, and his story of salvation and his message and, and his acts of salvation were given to us fourfold. Nevertheless, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's be more specific as we compare them in a chart. Number one, a chart. Here's our chart. You can clearly fill in the first line, can you not? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have four books. Now, we often talk about how the New Testament is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the apostles, just by nature of their role, we recognize that they are giving authoritative messages from Christ. Uh, but we don't have four apostles writing these gospels. Matter of fact, we have uh, two of the four. And let's start with Matthew. Matthew, of course, if you read through the gospels, you'll learn he was one of the 12. And uh, he's also called Levi, his Hebrew name. 
And Mark, though, is not an apostle. We would say that he is a New Testament prophet. And we know from early, early church history, he is a disciple of Peter. And Peter, of course, was the prominent apostle, the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And so Mark is the spokesman in this case, you might even say the amanuensis, the one who sits and writes authoritatively, prophetically, in a prophetic role as God breathed words come from his pen, if you will, to take the message of the eyewitness Peter and bring them to writing. Luke, again, is not an apostle. Uh, We learn about him in the book of Acts. He speaks in the first person plural as being a part of Paul's travels. He's Paul's physician, among other things. He's a right-hand man. He's a disciple of Paul. Uh, Paul, of course, is an apostle, and Luke is a prophet. And so that is the role that we understand him to have, one thing that gives him certain authority to write this book. John, of course, is one of the 12 as well. So we have two apostles bookcasing our four portraits of Christ, and John is the apostle that Jesus loved. That's how he depicts himself, portrays himself in the Gospel of John, not even mentioning his own name. Let's talk about the length of these books. You know the chapters, but they they can belie the actual length. So I thought I would give you not only the chapters, but give you a sense of the words in the original Greek New Testament. So we've got about 18,345, if you want to be exact, words in the Greek text of Matthew 28. And you should know how many chapters we have in Mark. You've memorized that, so shout it out. Very good. I think I heard the uh, junior high director say it. 16 chapters. There are about 11,000 words in the Greek New Testament as it relates to Mark. Now, Luke, you should know how many chapters are in Luke. Shout it out. 24, very good. I think you looked ahead because you knew I was going to ask that. No, we're in chapter 22. We're two chapters away from the end of Luke in our Sunday study. Very good, yes. We may finish. It's possible. Now, again, you may say, well, that's a smaller book than Matthew, but that's not true. That's one of the reasons I put the words down. We've got 19,482 words in the Greek New Testament, 1,151 verses in Luke. So it is a bigger book than Matthew. As a matter of fact, if you add the words and the chapters of Acts, that's why Luke is the most voluminous author and prophet in the New Testament, not Paul. He has more books, obviously, but not more words. John is 21 chapters. I will save you from the quiz on that one in about 16,000 words, a little less than that, 15,635, with just over 1,000 verses. Now, this is really what's going to cause most of our, be the cause for most of our conversation tonight, and that is unique material. How much material do we have in these Gospels that is unique? We don't find it in either of the other three Gospels. And that creates a series of curious questions that we're going to spend most of our time trying to think through tonight. So in Matthew, if you think about that, 18,000 words, 28 chapters, there's a lot of information there. But only, if we're going to talk about exclusively unique statements, words, stories, we've only got 20% of what's in Matthew as unique content. That may or may not be a surprise to you. Now, Mark is the shortest, but even proportionately, he has a lot less that is not shared with any of the other three. So 3% of Mark's gospel is not shared. It's unique information. You follow what I'm saying there. There's lots of things. Luke, for instance, let's just go to Luke. 35% of it, and I'll give you one example. The garden scene is not unique to to Luke, but that scene of him having uh, such distress that he's got 
sweat coming off of his brow that's dripping like uh, blood might be dripping from someone's brow, uh, or an angel coming to minister. There's two verses right there that are unique to Luke. We don't get that information in, in Matthew. John, I think it's going to be less or more. Obviously more. So much of it is not in the others. 92%. So much of it. If you look at even the upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer, John 17, chapters 12 through 14. It's just a million parts of John. The prologue, Peter's restoration, John 21. We can go on and on and on. Most of that is unique information. The audience, at least generally speaking, I think not so much generally in the first one, you can make the case from the very beginning of this book that the point of Matthew is to try and appeal to the Jews about Christ, and that's why he quotes so much Old Testament. He has so many connections and parallels to the Old Testament. Now, he's constantly speaking with reference to Jewish customs and Jewish roles in Israel without any explanation. He expects his readers to know uh, about Judaism and about the structure of the Sanhedrin or Pharisees or Sadducees. So his message is directed toward a primarily Jewish audience. Mark, on the other hand, a Roman audience. His is short and brief, obviously, and we have at least a general sense of his Roman audience. Luke to the Greeks, himself a Greek, writing to Theophilus specifically but obviously it was not intended just for one person. That might have been his benefactor who underwrote his work as a historian, as we mentioned at the very beginning of our study of Luke. John, it's hard to say, but we'll just say, we'll call it the church. A lot of people like to put it this way because he's writing a work that he's very clear about. He's wanting people to read this and to trust and believe in Christ. And so it's, uh, it's almost the, the first gospel track. It's the long version of why Christ is worth your trust and, and desperately that you desperately need to give him your, your confidence. So it comes as no surprise when you think about the messianic claims of Matthew that Jesus is presented as the messianic king. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the one the Old Testament saints expected. Uh, he is the one who's bringing in the kingdom. Everything about Matthew's message as it shows its distinctiveness from the other three gospels is presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. Mark may be a little harder for us to be very specific or distinctive about this, but giving that picture of the suffering servant that he, and I'm quoting now from Isaiah 53, of that suffering servant, the picture of him coming to seek and save the lost. Luke, even more so, I suppose, in terms of the concept of him coming to seek and save the lost as the mediator between God and man. Words like redemption, for instance, used in Luke, not used in in the other gospels. Words like justified. I mean, these concepts, the concepts are in the other gospels, but the words and the focus on that. He is the one who stands before us, makes us right before the Father. We get a lot of that uh, Pauline even perspective, obviously, because he's a disciple of Paul about the concept of Christ being our Savior. John, of course, making a big, big deal from the very first verse that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things came to being through him. He's the Word. He was with God from the beginning. He, he is God. That concept of the God-man and his divinity. Mark talking often about him being the Son of Man. John talking about him being the Son of God. All of these are complementary pictures. As you compare the four Gospels with that chart, what we want to do further is break down those first three columns and talk about synoptic Gospels. We'll spend the rest of our time talking about the three, first three Gospels and comparing them. Just take that first part of this compound word, our word in English here, coming from these two Greek words, sin together and optic, of course, to see. Themologists, optics, 
to see together. And basically what we're saying is they're having, they have a common view of Christ and his ministry. That picture of seeing together. We're looking together with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at a series of events. Though the order doesn't always perfectly follow, though it's not section by section perfectly in sync, the concepts are a discussion of Christ in those last three years in particular, giving us a common view of the earthly ministry of Christ in Galilee, in Perea, in Judea. They're giving us a a common view. John cares a lot less about laying that out in any kind of order. He's making a point. He's giving the I am statements. He's showing the discourses of Christ in a very unique format, all to bring about trust in who Christ is. So the focus is different. The emphasis is different, but it's all meant to form a complementary, full-orbed view of Christ, these four Gospels. We're going to talk about the synoptic Gospels for the rest of the time because of what is known as the synoptic problem. Now, this may get a little bit wordy and, and complex, but I want to make this as simple as I can, recognizing this is the kind of thing that's been wrestled with from the very beginning, from the Diatessaron or in the first uh, harmonies of the Gospels or all the way back to Eusebius at the beginning in the second century. People trying to look at these four Gospels and say, what's going on here? And particularly with these three, they are so similar in so many ways. And so the question arises, uh, what kind of problem is there? What is the problem? Well, the problem is, first of all, how do you account for all the similarities? When we talk about the similarities, we're talking about the narrative stories, the settings in the narratives, the sayings, and exactly uh, kind of what he's teaching in these settings, and more specifically, down to the words, the word order, and the, the phrases themselves being identical in so many places. You go to college and or high school, doesn't matter, and you turn, turn in a paper, and it is about some event, you know, say write a paper on what you did, you know, over uh, spring break, you, you get two papers in that share the kind of similarities that the synoptic gospels have, you're going to say there's been plagiarism here, right? And certainly in our day, plagiarism is a bad thing. You're stealing information. That's, that, that is certainly seemingly a, a problem. On the surface, you're thinking, well, how do you account for the similarities? It looks like they've, they've copied one another. Well, in and of itself, you'd say, well, that'd be easy. Just like a teacher would say, it's easy. I see your papers. They're the same. You copied each other. or You you know, copied Wikipedia or whatever to write this term paper. But then it's, well, how do you account for the differences? And the differences get very complicated because, and I'll try to illustrate this with some charts and so forth to give you a sense of how difficult this can be. In these differences that you read, of course, our question is, do they contradict each other? Are there irresolvable problems in how Matthew presents a message or a sermon from Christ, say in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, with what Luke does? And are these even the same? I mean, you start looking at the differences between even the setup for the longest sermon of Christ in Luke, which I called the Sermon on the Plain, and Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. I say that because Luke sets it up. They went to a level place, and Matthew says he went to up on a mountain, sat down, and taught the crowds. And you look at what he taught, and there's a lot of similarities, but the differences are so major in terms of the, the context and even how it flows and what's being said and things that are in Matthew that aren't in Luke, things that are in Luke that clearly seem to be in a different order or even a different subject than Matthew, how, how does that work? Are, are these two stories in, in contradiction, or can they in some way be harmonized? Can I take these stories, whatever it is, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000 or the calming of the, of the sea? One gospel talks about Peter getting out of the boat, walking on water. Another gospel doesn't mention that. These contradictory stories, the blind men coming into Jericho, coming out of Jericho, 
we've got issues here. Can these stories be harmonized? Should we even try to harmonize them or do they contradict? We don't have this on the, on the paper here, but just on the screen to get an appreciation for this. I've already given you some percentages of what the unique material is, and that's just the starting point. But the synoptic problem, in a nutshell, is trying to study the similarities and differences in the Gospels and explain their relationship to one another. If you look up here on this overhead, you'll see on the screen, we've already established that Mark only has 3% of the material in it that is unique, 35% for Luke and 20% for Matthew. So you can say, okay, I get that. That's unique. But you got a lot of colors in the pieces of pie here. What's going on? Well, let's look at whatever color that is. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, when you look at the parts that they share, which in this study of the synoptic problem is called triple tradition. It's in all three books. 76% of Mark you can find shared in Luke, which is 41% of what's in Luke, which is shared also with Matthew, which is 45% of Matthew. You follow that? And then you think, okay, well, What about parts that are shared in Matthew and Luke that aren't shared in Mark? We call that double tradition. The double tradition. We have two witnesses here, Luke and Matthew, that have material. Luke, 23% of it shares 25% of Matthew. So those two are similar, sometimes identical. Sometimes the wording is perfectly identical. And then you say, well, what about this? What about what does Mark and Luke share that Matthew doesn't have? Well, that is 3% of Mark and 1% of Luke. So that's interesting. Only 1% of Luke will match what's going on in Mark. We have the same kind of connection in Matthew and Mark. For Mark, that's 18% that shares with Matthew that doesn't share with Luke and 10% of that that doesn't share with Luke. So if you just spent time looking at that chart and thinking, okay, how do I account for all of that? And you just say, think about all the different ways you say, sometimes, and when I talk about shared stories, I'm not just talking about shared stories. I'm talking about shared sequencing. I'm talking about shared structure, shared dialogue, and sometimes identical wording, identical. If you have that going on, that now you're starting to understand the synoptic problem. How, do we, how does that work? How do we deal with that? Well, let's figure this out. But before we do, Let me talk about dangers in modern theories. The first week we started this, along with the first week we started an Old Testament survey last year in September, I came back to what we've always dealt with in bibliology, pneumatology, even Christology, that God has given us his word, that he has revealed himself. And the truth claims about that are incredible. And if we're just dealing with the New Testament, I want to go back to some things in the New Testament that should be squared in our minds and set in our minds that are not forgotten in any of the discussion that's going to follow. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Let's just think about what Jesus said here. He says almost identical to what's read in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 8. And that is, heaven and earth will pass away. But he said, my words will not pass away. At least that's what Matthew said that he said, that heaven and earth are going to pass away. But whatever Christ said, his words, not going to pass away. Okay, so I'm starting with the claim here that Christ has said some things that he says are going to be eternally relevant and important. John 16, 13. I shared this at the first week of the first session of our time together. When the spirit of truth comes, this is the upper room discourse. Jesus is talking just before he gets, goes to the last supper, has the last supper and goes off into the garden that we just studied this last weekend. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. He tells these 
apostles of his. Into all truth, he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the apostolic commission came with, at least this is what John says, the, of course, I'm saying that facetiously because we're dealing with a synoptic problem. If this is what Jesus said, the claim was that these apostles are going to have some kind of supernatural endowment to not only say what actually happened, and I'll get to more verses on that, but what is to come. They're going to be in a prophetic role, a prophetic role that is identical to what we saw in the Old Testament. And that is that every piece of what we saw in the Old Testament is specifically referred to as Paul writes to Timothy about the word, it's God breathed, it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That that information that was recorded has that divine nature to it. It is God-breathed. It's as though God said it. God wrote it. Mark 8, 38. These are the kinds of sweeping statements throughout the Gospels that speak of what's going to happen down the road. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, which is dealing with the epic, I would argue, of the entire last days, which is from the time of Christ's coming till his, the time of his second coming. He says, if we're ashamed of, of him and his words, that would refer to us, then the Son of Man is going to be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Nothing more fundamental than the eschatological promise that in the end, Christ is going to come back and set up his kingdom. And the test of that is, are you going to be ashamed of him and his words? I mean, we're starting to build some kind of case, and it fits right into that promise that there's going to be this apostolic band that's going to have a prophetic office that they're going to record and write things that are going to have a very significant role in not only predicting the future, what is to come, but the things that we must do in response to that. And we're going to be even judged on how we respond to what Jesus said and what he did, who he was. Luke 24, 44. He said this to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Moses, the Torah, prophets, Old Testament classical prophets, the Psalms, the first book of the writings, the three parts of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled because none of those words are going to ever go away. Flower is going to fall, grass is going to wither, word of God is going to stand forever. And he says, now I'm speaking to you these things. And everything that's written about me in the Old Testament, you're going to see now by what I've said that those two match and come together. I'm the fulfillment of all that. My words. He makes these sweeping promises. Anyone, open-ended, superlative statements about anyone. If anyone hears my words, John 12, and does not keep them, if I don't do what he said, I don't judge him for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's why I'm here. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge and the word I've spoken will judge him on the last day. That's what John said that he said. John said these are his words, words about the future, the prophetic office of looking toward the end of time. And what he said, he said, will be the judge on my life. Those words, which apparently are recorded in John 12. First John, same apostle, writes a little letter. He says, whoever keeps his word, back to that, these statements, propositional statements of truth. In him, truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. How do I know that the love of God is doing its thing in my life? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So I'm going to keep his word, which is I got to know what it is and I got to follow it. I'm going to walk, peripateo, the Greek word for following the pattern. It's an analogy. Walk is not about our gait or getting from point A to point B on our feet. It's about me living a life that's like his. So I'm going to be judged by that. I'm going to even know if I'm even saved by the fact that I have his word, know his word, keep his word, and live the life that Jesus lived. 
The apostolic claim, as I quoted the first week, 1 Corinthians 2, these things God has revealed to us. The apostolic band said, through the Spirit, in that prophetic office, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And we impart this in words. These words aren't taught by human wisdom. They're taught by the Spirit. We're back to that concept of God breathed. Breathed, by the way. It's the word both in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Spirit, breath. It's the word of, of the concept of the Spirit, in this case, in the prophetic office, being the vehicle for the truth, the revelation that comes through these prophets. So we get this Spirit producing these God-breathed documents. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Oh, but we have the mind of Christ. Here's the apostolic band saying we are teaching the truths and words of God. Do you understand that none of that makes any sense? If we don't have some kind of accurate picture of what Christ said and what he did, I can't be judged on the last day by it. I can't, I can't have any sense of obedience to any of this unless I put all these pieces together, which are, I've got to have your words that are never going to go away. They're going to be the basis for my judgment. That is going to be even the basis for my assurance to know if I'm even right with you. If I know that I know your word, I keep your word, I live like you live. None of that is going to work unless this works. And that is the promise you made in taking this select group of people, building the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, allows them to give us accurate pictures of those words and those deeds, and we know how you walked. We've got to know that. If we don't know that, we're in big trouble. We have no way, none of this then makes any sense. Second Corinthians twelve twelve. All of these things, and again, you've got to believe that there's a record in the book of Acts of this, that they were recording the miraculous signs that were the imprimatur on these people's words. They were speaking as prophets with authority. They were, they were apostles. They were sent ones. They were the emissaries of Christ. And they proved that by the deeds. The signs of a true apostle performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. All that together. The New Testament claim is God is going to take this group of people, record what he said and what he did. It will be the basis for judgment, the basis for assurance. It'll be the guidance for your life. It'll be what matters in the end of time. We've got to have all that. He's got to somehow give us that. Just like in the Old Testament, we clearly had all that. We had the prophetic word through the prophets. J. Gresham Machen, the, uh, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, which if you haven't read it, it's a good read. I mean, maybe not in the first two years of your Christian life, but certainly if you've been a Christian more than 10 years, you need to read this. This was a classic book in responding to Princeton. He was a prophet, Princeton, and it's liberal slide and writing about the fact that liberalism is not Christianity. It's a great little book. It's available on Kindle. You ought to get it. When it comes to the concept of, the, of, of all the debates regarding do we have a reliable, accurate view in the Gospels of what Jesus said and what he did, he makes a statement that's very helpful. He said in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, if religion be made independent of history, and by that we're talking about a foundationalism, and by that I mean a philosophical view of truth, which is truth is a correspondence with reality. That history is a record of stuff that has actually happened. Now, we live in a day of doubt and skepticism and post-Christian nonsense about having doubt about everything. We can't affirm anything. We don't even know that we know. That has nothing to do with what anything in the Scripture. The scripture presented to us in the context of what has always been a rational, reasonable truth claims are claims about correspondence with reality. And he says, if we don't have that, if we're really basing our life on one day I'm going to be judged based on what Christ has to do, what he said, 
and the response to what he's done and, and, and how I live my life walking in, in that manner that he walked. If I don't have that history, if somehow religion is esoteric and disconnected from that, so then there's no such thing as the good news. There's no such thing as the gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. The whole point of the four gospels is Christ came, lived in our place, fulfilled the righteousness. As I tried to point out Sunday, I mean, the average lifespan, about 40, Jesus lived almost to be 40. We have a full life fully lived in a way that was supposed to be the way life should be lived. That now can be credited to me, imputed to me. I can now have all my sin if you will, imputed to his cross, forensically, God treating him as though he were me, that transaction, if that, if I don't have a record of that, if I don't have anything to trust, if there's no anchoring, I can't be moored to that reality, we don't have a, we don't have a gospel. And Machen was trying to fight what we're back fighting again in a new way. We had a rebound, but we're back where we were. When we disconnect from the truth claims of the New Testament, or say we really can't know because of the synoptic problem whether or not any of this was actually said by Christ, then we forfeited the entirety of our, of our gospel. He helped to found the school, by the way, one of the schools I graduated from. So the biblical assertions, let's make those just in summary fashion here. Christ's life and words are accurately recorded. That, and, and again, we can spend a lot of time in the first segment of our theology on Compass Nights, which is bibliology, trying to substantiate that claim. That there is a God, he exists, he's revealed himself, he has governed that message as it goes through the prophets, that's inspiration. It's been preserved, it's been recognized as God's word, canonicity. It's, it's been transmitted, and we still have record a record of it. It's been translated so I can understand it. God, the Spirit active in my life to be able to understand it, illumination. I can get God's communication to me, and I believe... And again, I have a whole course of study just to prove this point, but Christ's life and words, along with the rest of the Bible, I believe are accurately recorded. Christ's recorded message then is authoritative. It's based, as Machen says, the authority, the efficacious nature that it actually does anything is founded on the fact that it is truly given to us. It's, it's real, it's happened, it's truthful, it bears the authority of God. And that these gospels... If I'm going to have to be judged by those words, if I'm called to now live my life in the entire epic between the first coming and the second coming based on what he said, then I don't have a distorted view of, of Christ. I don't have a distorted view of his message. Christ is actually pinned through the apostles and prophets, his word, and I can see it. I can understand it. I can comprehend it. It's, it's clear. The doctrine of the perpiscuity of Scripture, the perpiscuity of the Gospels. It is understandable. It's cogent. You can get it. It's not distorted. There's not something that happened. As I raise questions about how do I understand the similarities, how do I understand the distinctions, the four Gospels don't distort the message. And all four Gospels, just like the rest of the Scripture, are God-breathed. They're God-breathed. God has spoken. This is His Word. And if all that's true, to come back to the beginning... I then can make this assertion, which is what the whole point is, that the harmonization of these four stories, that each of them by themselves are true, can be harmonized. I can then figure out whether or not something happened. I can figure out whether the component parts in one gospel that aren't in another. I can say all of that 
must have happened. And in that setting, it happened, even though this one gospel doesn't record it, the other one does. The setting is the same. I can look at the difference between Christ's sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and look at the sermon on the plain in Luke and say, you know what? These are such different settings. They're irreconcilable settings, and the content is different, though there are similarities. They must be two different sermons in two different places. That's why the setting is different. And therefore, I make decisions as a biblical student to say, we can harmonize this. I can work at harmonizing this. I can figure this out. A resource you need to have, it may cause you some consternation and confusion at first, but you need to have the books that are in the category, at least one, and I would say more than one because you have to make decisions as to how to do this when you write a book like this. You should take your logos, which you should all have, and should at least get one, I'd say two or three, harmonies of the gospel. A harmony of the gospel isn't going to harmonize for you. All it's going to do is lay these assumed different texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it'll add John, although it doesn't track very often. Matthew, Mark, and Luke take the synoptic gospels, and it will lay them side by side. If you just type in the word harmony into your Logos page, you'll get that. Or if you're still in the Gutenberg season of life, go to Amazon and type in harmony of the gospels. Harmonies of the gospel right here, that's $22, 20, $22.99, 23 bucks. Even if you just had that one, you'd, you'd be in good shape to take a look at what we're doing maybe on Sunday and be ahead of me by looking at Matthew 23, verses 39 through 46 last week and saying, okay, is this in the other gospels? It will lay them out for you. It'll find it in Matthew. It'll find it in Mark. It'll put it right there. It'll find anything related in John. It'll put them side by side and you can look at those and at least start to compare them. And you'll say, oh, that's interesting. There's no reference to an angel in in, in Matthew or, or, or Mark. There's no reference to his sweating in Matthew or Mark. And at least you'll understand a little bit of the harmony of, of, of the Gospels. One you won't find under harmonies, which is pretty much the standard, and I'll tell you in a second why they're different, is one that you need to look up under the synopsis of the four Gospels. This one's a little bit more. It's got a little bit more to it, and it's, plus it's from a much more expensive publisher in Stuttgart, Germany, but the United Bible Society. But this is one you won't find under harmonies, so type in the word synopsis of the four Gospels. So what does it look like? It looks like this. And what you're going to find is there are questions to ask in some situations, is this a parallel text or not? And that's why one harmonies, whether it's Robertson or Lexham or Alland or the synopsis, you put those, some of them will make a, they'll make an executive decision as to whether or not they think this is even a parallel. And, and that's fine. That's why it's good to have more, more than one of these. And the great thing about having this electronically as opposed to in print, and you can buy them in print is this right here. When you type up here on the top, you click on that button, and if your default is the English Standard Version as it is on my Logos, all of a sudden now, you can pull down from that menu and put that in any translation you want, which is another great way to study a passage of Scripture when you're in the Gospels to not only see all the parallel passages from the other Gospels, but to be able to look at those other translations. And for those that are learning the languages or have learned them, it's so easy. It was a whole other book you had to buy when I was in seminary, and that is you had to have your Greek harmonies and your English harmonies, and then I had an NIV harmonies, and I had an New American Standard harmonies, and I had a, it just it's a lot easier electronically. But you can buy them on Amazon as well. You type in harmonies of the gospel, or you can type in synopsis of the gospels. I think that's only on Amazon. The synopsis one from Stuttgart is only in the New Revised Standard, I think, now these days. Okay, a couple more things if you want to go a couple layers deeper. 
Uh, this book, I'd get the bottom one, by the way, but here's a close-up of it. The Horizontal Line Synopsis of the Gospels. Now, again, I'm just kind of going off because some of you are Bible geeks like me, I suppose, and this will take you another layer deeper. Instead of putting columns, and unfortunately, Logos, I don't have a tool yet that does this, but this uh, Reuben Swanson is awesome, very helpful. It's in English. I think it uses the Revised Standard Version as its base, as its translated text. The horizontal line synopsis, I should have put a picture of it up. I, I forgot to snap a picture of it. We'll put every single line and stack them instead of put them in columns. Every sentence is stacked. And you start with Matthew, and it'll have the entire Gospel of Matthew. And any parallel passage in Luke and Mark, it'll put it underneath, and it's very helpful. And every time you see a distinction, it'll underline the word. That's when you start to get to the place where you recognize, because you can look at something like this, and it's hard to say, okay, how much of that... I guess I got to keep bouncing my eyes back and forth. Uh, Swanson's will do that for you. Now, again, it's going to create more questions at times. How in the world are these identical here, but then they're not here? And why would that be? I understand that. But I consult these works every single week, especially when I'm preaching in the Gospels, which I am. And if you're really a nerd and you do know the languages, they even have this one in Greek, which is excellent. And they got to pick a Greek text as the standard. And so they do it against Codex Vaticanus, which obviously is a great fully preserved manuscript almost fully preserved from the fourth century. But nevertheless, they have it in Greek too. All right, you want a book that's going to help you through this? Once you start to find the problems, then you're going to go, I need the solutions. How do we harmonize this? I would recommend this book because a book like this is going to help you, it's going to help you recognize that we understand all the assertions I just made and now we try to work at harmonization. Inerrancy and the Gospels, a God-centered approach to the challenges of harmonization. It's not easy. There's a lot of work to it, but that's a great book. It's only been out since 2012, Crossway book. It's worth having. It's only 16 bucks. It's not going to go through every passage and every problem in harmonization, but it's going to help you understand that harmonization is not only possible, it's a legitimate discipline, and here are some principles to work on and some concepts to sit in your mind. Now, you want to go passage by passage? I'll help you with that a little bit. I'm spending a lot of your money this month, am I not? These are good works, though. New International Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties. Now, this is the whole Bible, which is a nice book to have on your shelf anyway, but when you get to the Gospels, it'll go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it will help you when you see something and think, okay, the blind man coming, when going into Jericho, Jesus meets them, it seems like they're coming out of Jericho in another text, what's going on here? These will help you. Police and Archer, it's a good book, it's helpful, and some of the things that are not in this book, you will find in this book. F.F. Bruce worked on this. Walt Kaiser worked on this, The Hard Sayings of the Bible. And again, it has the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but there's lots of great connections that you can say, okay, I get it. I didn't even think about that. I realize I see that. The work of harmonization can be helped by those two books. I think the first name is our friend Walt Kaiser Jr. from New England there at Gordon-Conwell, who I've had come to preach here for us. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but great book, helpful book. There's two we could go on, but that'll get you started. Types of New Testament criticism. I put criticism in quotes because I don't want you just to define that as your husband or something, or criticism, yeah, I know about that. This is a uh, technical word that we use in biblical studies to describe various forms, and there's plenty of them. I mean, there's, we could talk about six, seven, eight different categories, but let me give you a few categories that just relate to our 
issue of the synoptic problem. But before I do that, I want to distinguish two categories. There's something called lower criticism, lower biblical criticism, and higher biblical criticism. I'm not really here to talk about lower biblical criticism, although I can't help but talk about it, so I want to talk about it a little bit. Lower criticism. When you understand that category, we're looking now, I like, I like to th- picture it spatially. When I first learned these words, I thought about really leaning down and putting my nose against the text. When I'm up close looking at the details of the text, I want to figure out something. And what is that? Lower criticism. Everyone has to do textual criticism. Textual criticism is questioning the validity of a variant. And a variant means a difference in handwritten New Testament manuscripts. We got New Testament manuscripts going all the way back to at least the early second century, and some would argue even to the middle of the first century, as I often quote that book, Piece of Matthew at Magdalen College in England, at least back to early second century. It's a whole science of trying to date these early manuscripts. We have so many of them in Greek alone, pushing 6,000 of these manuscripts, and they're all over the world. I've gone to visit some. I've had a chance, the privilege of looking at some up close, uh, holding them between pieces of glass in my hands. When we have all these handwritten texts, we've got to compare them. Now, do you have to do that in the Gospels? Of course you do, but that's not, that's not dealing with the synoptic problem. I shouldn't say that. Sometimes it connects and intersects with the synoptic problem. What, how do we explain these similarities and differences? Sometimes it's a textual criticism issue. But everyone has to do this. It's necessary because of the quantity of ancient New Testament manuscripts. There are so many ancient New Testament manuscripts, we have to compare them to figure out what it is that was originally in the Gospel of Luke. Because we don't have the original Gospel of Luke, just like we don't have the original of any ancient manuscript, uh, any ancient work. We don't have anything from Plato, Aristotle, you know, the Gallic Wars. We have nothing. Peloponnesian Wars. We don't have any of those documents from history. Josephus, you name it. Eusebius. We have to reconstruct them on the oldest available manuscripts. The good news is we have a very big quantity going all the way back almost to the same generation of that original manuscript. Some would even argue crisscrossing it and going before the New Testament was finished. We might have some at Oxford. Nevertheless, and since I'm building a library, I didn't do this till the very last minute. I thought I'll throw a couple books in that might be helpful. You will occasionally deal with this in a synoptic issue, but that's not why I'm giving you this information, just because it's helpful for you when you have someone say, I have a King James Bible, and my King James Bible in 1 John 5, I have this verse, and your Bible didn't have it, so I guess you're going to hell because that's a satanic Bible because you took out something really cool that I have in my Bible. I deal with all this in our bibliology lectures but this textual commentary of the Greek New Testament is the standard. I'm not saying it's the one you should get, but it's the standard. And I would be remiss if I didn't say this would be one to have. Because anytime you have enough of a variant in a passage, this work, also from Stuttgart, from the Bible uh, Society, it's going to help you understand what the evidence is. And they rate every single set of variants with an A through D rating. And A is we're certain. We're really certain. Though there's some variants, we're certain this is the right reading to, we're pretty sure this is the right reading, we're not sure, and we're really doubtful what the reading is here. And again, this is mostly just minuscule stuff. It's the inversion of a, of a word order. It's the spelling of a word. It's, the, it's something so tiny in most cases. And it's usually against a whole mess of other manuscripts that are all in agreement. The one you might want to get, which of course is a little bit more, is written for non-Greek readers. Now, 
Metzger's you can read without knowing Greek, but this one's designed without knowing Greek. And this one's called a textual guide to the Greek New Testament. And this one's written for translators who are just translating from English, say, on the mission field into some language like creating a New Testament for the first time in someone else's language. And maybe they're not, they're not trained or very proficient in the original languages. So that'll do the same thing, only it's not as technical and it's easier to understand. The one I really like, and I don't always agree with his conclusions, but I really like it because it's very thorough, is Philip Comfort's New Testament text and translation commentary. New Testament text and translation commentary. He is probably the most thorough, giving you much more to think about in the variants that he covers, which is a lot. It's a fat book. I don't know how many pages, maybe 550, I'm guessing. But for 31 bucks, I mean, if you ever get into those discussions with someone about why is the woman caught in adultery in brackets in your Bible? Why is the longer ending of Mark, you know, all in italics in your Bible? What's with that verse in Acts that's missing? Those are the kinds of things you need to be able to have intelligent answers for. If you just have this on your shelf and pull it off. And by the way, all of these are on Logos so far. It's great to have them electronically because you could always have them right on your phone when you're sitting there at the car wash and someone's arguing with you about the King James Bible or something like that. You'll have it. Now I'm going to throw this up again just because I know there's some seminary students here and a lot of people don't know about this, but this isn't for the average person. But you want the most extensive, most detailed of every single variant into the minuscule, minuscule every single one. Everything that we know and have cataloged. It's a $100 book. But it's, um, it's amazing because there's nothing else like it. The Center for New Testament Textual Studies, New Testament Critical Apparatus. That book right there, it's almost impossible it's to read because it's just got every single variant that has ever exists. And it's all laid out with codes and, and abbreviations for every manuscript. You can locate every manuscript in any museum or any library or any school that it's in. But it is extensive. Now, none of you are going to get it probably, but maybe there's a seminary student here that is going to get it. I've asked guys, and I know this wasn't out when I asked them, but I, I, I love textual criticism, and I would ask my professors in, in seminary and grad school about, I wanted to buy whatever it took to have this, and back in the day, it was just impossible to get, but now for 100 bucks, you can have something that, man, people have been wanting for a long time to have it at ready access, and as long as I said that, I threw this one in just for fun. Reuben Swanson didn't, uh, he's the one who did the horizontal inline synopsis of the Gospels. He didn't finish the New Testament, and I don't know that he ever will. I think he's still alive. I even wrote him a letter of thank you for writing these books because these were very helpful. But they take, I guess this is a Greek example of what we don't see in English. I wanted to put a, I thought I should have taken a picture. I did take one of the Greek text. But you see how they lays all of them out on top of each other? And anytime there's a difference, they'll put a line underneath it or a gap if there's something missing in a particular manuscript. They do that in every section of every verse in every volume that he has. And he has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he does have all the gospels. He's got Galatians. He's got first Corinthians. He's got one more or maybe two more, but he, he didn't finish them all. And I, I would love to have this on Logos, but they don't have it on Logos. But if you really love textual criticism, this is a, this is a must. Lower criticism is really not what we're dealing with. Not often, although it does have a bearing. There will occasionally be, and let me tell you why. I guess I'll tell you why. The later manuscripts, New Testament manuscripts, they went into four different quadrants in the ancient world. Down to Alexandria, we have the oldest ones there because it's most arid. Western, out toward Rome, I'm trying to do it backwards for you. Uh, Caesarean, which is like Syria, and Byzantine in modern day Turkey. The Byzantine Empire continued to speak Greek longer than anyone else, obviously, because they were speaking Coptic in, in uh, upper Africa, in Alexandria, Egypt. 
speaking uh, Aramaic, Caesarea, speaking Latin out, out west in Rome. So they kept producing these manuscripts. And so we have a lot of late manuscripts that come from the Byzantine Empire that are in modern-day Turkey. Those manuscripts often have attempted harmonizations with the other Gospels. You'll be in Luke, and you'll see a late manuscript from the Byzantine Empire that will have a reading that mashes together what was found, say, in Mark and Matthew. And I'll give you a simple example. It'll say something about Christ Jesus in in a passage. Well, that conflation may be that there was Christ Jesus in Matthew, but it wasn't in Luke. So scribe in the 8th century put it into Luke. That's, that does help you understand some of the work at harmonization that took place, which some of it was intentional. Some of it was not intentional. A lot of these scribes, they memorized this stuff. Even copyists memorized so much of the scripture. So occasionally you'll need lower criticism. But what we're really here to talk about is higher criticism. Higher criticism is also known, the category is known as historical criticism. Now think about this. Textual criticism, you're down in the weeds of all the words. You're trying to figure out the variance of the, of the differences between ancient manuscripts. Higher criticism is looking up, looking way up, and kind of looking back at the author looking back at the setting, looking back at what are you trying to do with this passage and what's your flow of thought here? It's the history behind why the text was written, not what was actually written. Lower criticism, the most conservative Christian on the planet does it, except for maybe the extreme KJV only guy who says there's no need for it because I got a King James Bible. It's good enough for Paul. It's good enough for me. But besides those guys, everyone does textual criticism. Now, historical criticism starts to get very subjective. It is the questioning not of the validity of this particular reading. It's the questioning of the validity of the story. It's the validity of the book, the rhetoric of the book, or the concept that's there in the New Testament. Like, where did that come from? Why in the world would Matthew, would Matthew put that in his, his gospel? And now we start to say, well, now I know why Peter's attempt to walk on the water was here because I know what he was trying to do, and it really didn't happen, but here's the kind of thing that Matthew would want to communicate, and that's why that's there. Higher criticism. Now, there's lots of categories. I'm going to give you three tonight. Three categories. Let's start with this one. And I, I hate to burden you with these words and phrases and, and titles, but I mean, I, I can't get away from them. form criticism. I guess I want to say some of you are in our women's uh, Bible studies and you're going to get some training this weekend from Josh McDowell's son, I think. Even a book like his, the one he revised of his dad's, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You, if you read a book like that, that's a popular level book, but it's got a lot in it. You're going to run into these phrases and categories and sections on form criticism. So this isn't just ivory tower stuff. Form criticism. Form criticism is trying to classify the forms or the types of information that we have in, in the book. It could be, well, we'll give examples later, but we're, we're looking at forms, which sounds a lot like genres, and it, it includes genres. What's the genre here? What is the type of literature? What's the, what's the reason that this form would be here, this type of literature would be there? Now, that doesn't sound too bad. I taught a class on New Testament genres I, at a seminary level. I, I mean, I'm a conservative guy. You've got to deal with the genres and know how to understand the differences between parables and apocalyptic literature and, and didactic literature and narrative literature. All that's important, and every conservative has to do that. problem when you deal with higher criticism, particularly form criticism, in understanding the Gospels, you're now trying to figure out so often, at least that's what the books are now saying, hey, what is real? Let's categorize what's real in these particular forms and genres and types and what is not. What's fabricated? 
Let's separate, put it another way, let's separate the facts from the author's strategies and intentions and elaborations. What's the author putting in here that's all about his agenda that's not matching the facts of what actually happened? Now, this is trying so often to explain the synoptic problem. And the synoptic problem is how do we tell or how do we account for the differences here? Not just the similarities. How do we account for the differences? Well, the differences so often in form criticism are the author's got a, an axe to grind. The author's got an intention here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if that's really who wrote these things, which of course a lot of them don't even believe that, but they'll say that's not real, that's not true because there is a elaboration of the author. The author's trying to make a point. Gundry and Thomas, that's Donald Gundry and Robert L. Thomas in their Harmonies of the Gospels, they make this comment. The critics' assumption, talking about form criticism, that those who had the strongest reasons for being interested in the historical facts of Jesus' life, which again, I agree with Machen, I agree with Thomas, I agree with Don Guthrie, we don't have any basis for the Christian life, for assurance, for salvation, unless the facts are on the table. As Paul said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, let's just take that one fact, which form critics would say, let's figure out why they would even want a risen Christ. And what would be the point of that? Why would they do that? Let's now create a story about resurrection that is in keeping with their theological motives. Because we're not concerned with the facts. He's saying, and the critics' assumption that those who had the strongest reason for being interested in the historical facts of Jesus' life had little or no interest in ascertaining and transmitting those facts, because that's what form critics say. They've got their own axe to grind. They don't care about the facts. Form criticism also maintains that the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life stood by in silence while falsehoods about Jesus was promoted as a truth. This is inconceivable. I 100% agree. Form critics that are using their imagination to come up with, why would someone say this? And trying to separate it from what was really actually said falls apart if anything about what's said in the New Testament is true. For instance, that we've got to have the facts of Jesus' words. They're going to claim to imbibe forever. That Christ's resurrection was pivotal for our salvation. That what he said on the cross was explanatory of his crucifixion. All of these things. The authors of the New Testament desperately wanted those facts to be out there. And not only did they stand by and watch it happen, they were the ones who were doing it. The most egregious example of this is kind of out of vogue now, at least in most people's minds. I don't hear many people talk about it, but Robert Funk and John Dominic Crossan and all those guys made about, what does it say, 50 critical biblical scholars, 100 laymen founded this thing called the Jesus Seminar. Anyone remember the Jesus Seminar from back in the day? Uh, I've got this book in my library, The Five Gospels, and it is a joke. It's a joke. It is form criticism at its worst, where you sit around now with a hundred laymen, which of course, that's probably give them more weight than the scholars because they really can see this and questions people's, people's motives. And you can read about it, by the way, on Wikipedia, although any good Bible uh, dictionary is going to deal with that. That's at least up with common movements in theology. The Jesus Seminar, they took beads and they basically... Now, again, you can compare this to lower criticism, which is trying to understand whether or not a variant is true. They did that same concept, A, B, C, and D, with the words of Christ. Do I think Jesus would have said that? Do I think Jesus would have done that? Do I think that, you know, a full-grown man that weighs 170, 80 pounds is going to walk on water? I don't, I don't think so. That, that goes, no, that's not going to get a, a, a green bead. That's going to get a red bead or a black bead, or I forget the colors. I used to have all that memorized in the 80s when it all was happening. They basically sat there with their own assumptions based on what they think the, the writers of the Gospels wanted to do, and they basically pared away all the things that they thought 
nah, these aren't forms or types or, or structures that would ever be original. Let's separate the facts from the author's elaborations. And they came up with a very pared-down Bible. It's much like the Jefferson Bible. You've heard me talk about the Jefferson Bible. Well, at least Jefferson was only looking for anything supernatural to peel that all off. These guys are looking at anything that's hard or difficult to digest through a 21st century or 20th century back then lens and say, I can't imagine Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the one that loves everybody, ever saying anything like that. Nope, I vote no. And they took literally took a vote to figure this out. The driving force of the 100 people was intuition. The driving force of 50 people in the room was basically historical criticism, higher criticism. It was form criticism in particular that drove a lot of that decision-making. And you can even read that there to decide their collective view. What was the purpose of Jesus? To decide their collective view on the historicity of the deeds and sayings of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, la-dee-da, that's awesome for you to tell me that. And you see crossing all the time. You, some of you watch the Discovery Channel, all that stuff, Mysteries of the Bible, and the aliens land on the pyramids and all that stuff you're watching. Whenever they bring up the Bible, they usually don't go to a, a good seminaries and ask professors who know. They ask guys like, like this guy. You'll see him all the time on those, on those interviews. All right, form criticism. How about this, redaction criticism. Redaction criticism, that today is as modern as the headlines. We want government to release these forms, the FBI, but it's been redacted. Redaction criticism. What is redaction? The author is redacting, not just the letter, because they are not just taking documents that are faxes or letters. They're they're taking oral history. They're taking a message of a life, and they're redacting it. They are separating, again, facts from the author's purposes as a redactor, as an editor. Now, these are folks that don't believe that the authors, of course, that say that the authors are the real authors. They're trying to understand which info in this is going to fit the author's or the editor's or the redactor's intention. That's redaction criticism. And we can say so much more about it, but you can see that the average person in a liberal seminary and a liberal commentary, not only are they not going to say Matthew wrote it and Matthew was an apostle of Christ, they're going to try and figure out who they think the editor was at one particular point and what he redacted, not only from the original stories that they might have early heard, but whatever they felt needed to be excised or purified or cleansed. And I could quote Thomas and Gundry again, that basically we're saying if any of this is true, then people are caring about the facts, but these are the people that were actually a party to denying the facts. It's an inconceivable concept. Thirdly, source criticism. Source criticism is really where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight. Where'd they get their material? It asks questions like, okay, I'm looking at Luke. Let's just say Luke is actually writing this and we'll take that at face value, but where did Luke get his material? Is there literary dependence? Did he have another document? Well, he talks at the beginning of his book about other documents, at least about having eyewitnesses. Maybe let's find out what kind, let's try and sleuth this out. Is there a literary dependence? And if that's the case, if there was any literary dependence among the gospel writers, we need to know who came first. Is there any logical way to, to figure out who might have come first with their gospel? Source criticism. Now, I'm not saying that there's no studies of genres that will help us understand things. I'm not saying there's not even a rhetorical understanding of what Luke might be doing. You've heard me use those words in the preaching through Luke for the last almost 200 messages now on Sundays to try and help people think, okay, Luke's got a rhetorical flow going here. This is why this helps to put this here, or that's why this particular emphasis works here. Those are are proper and appropriate things. I wouldn't want them to be called redaction criticism. And I wouldn't even want my genre understanding of this is a parable, so let's try and figure out Lazarus and the rich man. And understanding it's a parable, let's understand this this way. I, I would want that to be called form criticism. But there's certainly something germane to literary study and 
redaction criticism and genre study and form criticism. But when it comes to source criticism, again, I'm not saying there's not a sense in which good Christians don't ask these questions. And those are the questions we, we're going to spend the rest of the time at asking and in trying to answer. But before we get to that, letter C at the top of the back of your worksheet, let me give you three quick governing principles. Number one, John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. If I'm thinking about how did they get this material, I want to start at least by remembering this because I've got to give some kind of weight of importance to this and I've got to try to interpret this and understand what in the world this could mean. In the upper room, Jesus said to the, the apostles, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So apparently, again, he cares about the details of what he said. I've said them to you. Now, I didn't notice you taking any notes, but I said them to you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my authority, my name, he will teach you all things, so you're going to know more than you knew when you were with me, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You're going to have a supernatural endowment of recall. That's the promise here. At least you've got to interpret that in some way. I can't ignore that passage if I'm talking about where did Matthew get his sources? Where did John get that information? I at least know that John and Matthew were sitting in that room when Jesus said this to them. And certainly Peter was there as well which has a bearing on Mark and Paul making those statements about who knows the mind of the Lord, but God, we have the mind of Christ. Luke was Paul's primary spokesperson, a traveling companion. So that's one. We got a promise there. What did I call that? Christ promises. In particular, we dealt with the other promises of authority and all the rest, but now recall. Number two, eyewitness claims. We have throughout the New Testament a very strong emphasis on the fact like this, 2 Peter 1.16, hey, we're not making up stories. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we told you all this, we weren't just following some kind of story. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You want to know about Christ? Peter says, I was there. I saw it. I was an eyewitness. We start with a promise of the endowment of the spirit in the lives of the apostles to recall. Now we see they're making a big point about being witnesses. And of course, Luke chapter one, verses one and two Inasmuch, he writes to Theophilus, he says, as inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's about to start a story, a narrative, a portrait of Christ. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So we have this information, Theophilus. I'm going to write to you, to the Greek world, about Christ. And a lot of narratives have gone out there. A lot of people have compiled narratives. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to bring to you this information. And of course, it's more than just the human best. As I tried to say early on, we have a prophetic word with Paul's apostolic authority by his side. Promises of Christ, eyewitness claims, sources claims. So let's keep those in mind. Now, what are the three views? A, B, or four views I'll give you. A, B, C, and D. Number one, the most simple, straightforward theory is this. These are all all four of them, but let's just talk about the synoptic. Nobody's questioning the independence of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are independent compositions. There was no common literary dependence. No common literary dependence. No one was cheating off of anyone else. It is the oldest and longest standing view from the first comments that we have. Almost unanimous, though it wasn't unanimous. It was almost unanimous from the beginning, from Eusebius all the way through the midpoint of the 18th century in Germany. It was almost completely, everyone thought, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all independent literary sources that's what they had. Well, what kind of sources are independent literary compositions? What were their sources? Well, their memory, their firsthand accounts, oral tradition. They had, as Luke said, a lot of information out there. They knew a lot of the oral transmission of these stories. And 
They were eyewitnesses. At least they were amanuensises or writers or mouthpieces for the apostles in the case of Mark and Luke of people that were there. First-hand accounts, oral transmission of the story and their memories. If that's the case, the order and dates are not significant, which I can say one of the hardest things to determine with Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the, are the dates. I mean, everyone's going to put them somewhere between the 50s and 60s and John out there in the 90s, but the order of who came first is not significant in the theory if there's no common literary dependence and no one cheated off of each other. That's the first view. Independent compositions. I should say, speaking of Eusebius, the early church historian in the second century, he said Matthew came first, which would seem to make sense because it's not the longest gospel. It's the longest in chapters, not in words, and it was always put first. Always put first. And so there is, I mean, that's not a lot until you look at the rest of the New Testament and you see there seems to be a logical order of the layout. And I think there is something to be said that most people had believed early on Matthew came first and it was first in the canon, first in the collection of books. All right, that's the independent composition. The second one, and the most common today since the mid-18th century, it grew quickly and now it's dominated almost every seminary across the country, both liberal, at least to some extent, and conservative seminaries. The two-source theory. What are the two sources? The two sources for Matthew and Luke are Mark, that's the common source, and they copied from one other common source. So you got, they both copy from Mark, that's one source, and then there was another source, because I'm trying to explain now again, how do they have common material between them that didn't come from Mark? And sometimes it's down to the exact sentence. How do they get that? So the two-source theory is, I'm speaking now of what are the two source. let's start this. Who's using two sources? Matthew and Luke. What are their two sources? Mark and then something else. So there's four parties here. I'll illustrate it with a chart in a second. And we're talking about Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke are the composers. The two sources for Matthew and Luke are Mark and something else. What's something else called? It's called commonly Q. And even if you have any commentary that's fat in the gospels, you're going to have something, at least in the footnotes, if not in the main text, you're going to have a discussion of Q, Q, Q. What in the world is Q? Q is the German word for source. It's abbreviated for source. Quelle. Quelle, German source, Q. What is that? It is a hypothetical source document that was used alongside of Mark when Luke and Matthew wrote their gospels. Luke and Matthew are both big. Mark is small. There's another small source, or maybe big. We don't know because we're high. it's all hypothetical. But there's a source out there. We're calling it source because the Germans came up with this concept. And we're going to call it Q, and it's going to be the second source, and it's going to explain all the commonalities. Now, the commonalities that are probably most concerning for people are these sayings of Christ that are in Luke and Matthew that match, they're identical. The wording is identical. So there's got to be another source where they're getting those sentences and quotes from Christ. So they go further than just saying there was another mystery source. They're saying there's a mystery source that's very specific with the sayings of Christ. Now, it may surprise you that people have constructed this document out of thin air. There is no such document. I just need to make that clear. There is no cue. It's all hypothetical. But as we theorize, like in other areas of discipline and, and higher education these days, we can construct it from our imagination and say, here's what it must be. And you can see immediately with our chart of what's matching between Matthew and Luke that's not found in Mark. If they both used Mark as a source and they have common material and it's so exacting, it seems like they copied someone, it must be that. So they've recreated that. And I just looked up when I was doing this PowerPoint today and on my shelf, and I know it may seem weird to you, but right here next to my Luke commentaries and actually my 
synopsis lines, uh, uh, horizontal synopsis lines of the gospel, sits a commentary on Q, which doesn't exist, but it's a big, but it's a big fat book. It's a big fat book called the critical edition of Q. So if you work backwards to reconstruct this, you can see where you would come up with, okay, I have to, and it puts all these things in parallel columns, and it's all in Greek, so not helpful in English. There's probably an English version, but you now are creating a mystery document. At least they put it in gray, because it doesn't exist. But we're assuming, I shouldn't say it doesn't exist. They think it exists, even though they've never found it. It's the Bigfoot of, of biblical scholarship. It's out there. We know it exists, just no one has ever really seen it or taken a picture of it. Q. This is one I wouldn't spend your money on, but if you wanted to, you go to Logos and buy an edition of Q. I know. I've seen some good jokes from seminarians about Q. But anyway, what's the point? Here's the point. This is is much better than me trying to explain it as I did with hands in the air. Mark and Q, if you look at the colors here, Mark is the purple, Q is the blue. We have some purple in Matthew that matches the purple in Luke. And we have stuff that matches Matthew and Luke. We have to have a source to explain that. Let's call that Q. And so Q, which means source, there's another source, a mystery source, and that explains that. And then the green and whatever green, is it green and green? Two different colors of green. That's the independent material in Luke and Matthew. So they have their own material. And again, that's oversimplified. And even this is oversimplified. But basically, we're trying to say that if you look at the commonality, the double tradition, most of that double tradition, not just in sequence, but even in the wording and quotations of Christ, quotations in particular of Christ, that must be coming from another source. We'll let Luke have his own stuff and we'll let, because Paul told him, we'll let Matthew have his own stuff, but there's probably another source. That's what the two source theory says. So the order becomes very important. Then you have to say Mark comes first. And maybe you'll run across this phrase in your reading, a Mark in priority. Mark in priority means Mark has to come first, which they usually date it around 55 AD. And that precedes Matthew and Luke. And both of them relied on Mark along with the mysterious Q. Matthew and Luke are a lot longer than Mark. Mark is really short. Matthew and Luke are both very long. They expanded Mark. They don't believe that Mark condensed either of them. They don't think that if there's similarities between Mark and Matthew and Luke, that Mark would condense. We think, they think, Matthew and Luke would expand, which I just put here, which was not, by the way, the literary pattern of the ancient world. Usually when there's a work that is derivative of another work, it is a summation and it's a reduction. It's not an expansion. They come up with ways to say otherwise, but that is an interesting observation. Matthew and Luke's divergence from Mark are not the same. You can have a passage where you're tracking with Mark in Luke and you're tracking with Mark in Matthew and they're going along. All three columns seem to be perfectly in sync and then they split and Mark is no longer being tracked and Matthew puts it one way and Luke puts it one way, but they're not the same. So they're not drawing from the same source, but they're in the same exact context, the same exact story, the same exact scene, the same exact teaching, the same exact parable. That is hard for these folks to explain. The exceptions are very difficult. You have to then try and explain, if you're going to explain everything on literary dependence, why are they not depending on this third source? And this gets into very complicated propositions and hypotheses. Maybe there's a fourth source, which they start talking about a proto-Luke that was written before, or a Matthew that was written in Aramaic, and they're drawing from... There's lots of... I mean, as long as we're imagining, we can imagine a lot of things here to try and figure out sources. They'll say Mark is more primitive. 
I'm quoting Streeter here. Streeter was the guy who popularized this. And he had like 10 reasons why Mark was priority and why it was a source for the others. And I'm just picking a couple highlights. But I thought this was, I mean, something. This is a, a stronger of the points. And that is that Mark, like, it doesn't use the word Lord as often, for instance. The picture that a more developed theology of Christ, which again is the way the secular liberal world talks, that this is some kind of evolution of theology, which I don't believe. But that's the kind of, of statements that they make. And that kind of statement, again, they're saying, well, Mark seems to be much more primitive. Primitive, not just that it's shorter and more concise. They'll talk about grammar even, which again, it doesn't make any sense because I can read Hebrews and I can read 1 John. Every first year uh, Greek student read, learns to read from 1 John because it's very simple. No one starts in, in Hebrews because it's very difficult Greek. And I can say, well, there's a big difference. There. It has nothing to do with one sharing from the other. But they'll say Mark has simpler grammar. As a matter of fact, there's even ways he uses the aorist tense that just don't seem quite right. And then Luke is much better. Dr. Luke, you'd think he would be. And yet Matthew is, is better. And so Mark is more simplistic, more, more primitive. All right. I just looked at the clock again. I would just say this in terms of the two-source theory. It's difficult to consider that Matthew relied on Mark because Matthew was there. Mark is apparently writing as some kind of spokesperson for Peter and very difficult when you recognize that Matthew was a first-hand eyewitness to the things, and Peter is Mark's source. I'll give you that. But there are situations where Matthew would contextually rely on Mark, even for his own conversion story, which I think that's the point you have to say, that's really hard to believe, isn't it? That Matthew's going to go, well, let me see what Mark said here. Yeah, I should follow what Mark said about how I came to Christ. Those are the kinds of problems you have sometimes when you have this slavish connection not that everyone does, and these guys are very smart, and they spend all their time in this when they try to stay connected to the theories and track with the rules they've set up. I mean, it's just, it's not without its problems. Two gospel theory with no time left. It's also called the Griesbach hypothesis, just for completion. They say that Matthew is the earliest. Now watch this, it's just backwards now. Matthew is the earliest. Luke is the next. He draws from Matthew. Mark is the last of the three. He draws from Matthew and Luke. I've already told you the order of the books has some ancient support, not only in the canonical order that Matthew always comes first, but there are, there are very explicit statements from Clement of Alexandria in the second century, for instance, that he says Matthew was written first. Two-source hypothesis ignores that, a second century witness to which one came first. But this view, it, and it's popular, it's, in, it's growing in popularity, to, to gospel theory. It means, in other words, let's put it this way, Mark is the result and they follow now the synthesis and the reduction and that makes sense in in some ways that matthew is reduced in mark but matthew is not the only source for mark luke and matthew are the source for mark and so together and you see it's the same logic but they flip it on its head and but it works it can logic you can sleuth it out that way and it's compelling in many ways to read about the two gospel theory Still two sources, but not two sources for Luke. Only one source for Luke, which is Matthew, and two sources for Mark. It can explain a lot of the literary similarities and dissimilarities. Lastly, there's a newer theory that's coming on strong, the Mark without Q theory, which I know. But if Q has been such an established view for so many years, even in American seminaries, very strong. I mean, most people believe in Q. Well, there's a new movement, and it's not all that new. From the 60s, there were some very strong papers written in journals that Q doesn't make sense, and we need to get rid of it. The far hypothesis, it's also called, 
by Austin Farrer. He wrote an article, I said 60s, all the way back to 55, I guess. He wrote an article, Dispensing with Q. Today, the guy who's the number one spokesperson, very articulate. You can find him on podcasts. He's a Duke University New Testament professor. He is a big proponent of this Mark without Q theory. And of course, Mark then, he still says, his priority is there. It's the first one. But Matthew is drawing on Mark, and Luke is drawing on both Mark and Matthew. So it's, it, it flips it again. Mark is still, Mark is first, Matthew's next, Luke is next. That's an easy paradigm. And, and Mark draws from Matthew only, and Luke draws from Mark and Matthew. So we have two sources only for Luke. So Mark is the primary, Matthew is the only source for the only literary dependence is on Mark, and then Luke depends on them both. Again, that solves a lot of problems. Now, if you want all four of those views in a book, you can, you can look up the synoptic problem, four views. This is fairly recent, I think. I don't know what year it came out. I don't recommend that one, but that at least will give you the newest view, or at least the growing in popularity view. Farrer's hypothesis, the two, no, the Mark without Q theory. If you want one that I would recommend, it would be the three views on the origins of the synoptic gospels. And that one's good because I think the section on the independent composition view is probably the best articulated in that, that book. And Dr. Thomas is the editor for that book. And again, I mentioned this before. I would get this book just for the articles in the back of the book. A Harmony of the Gospels, all it deals with in the back of the book, at least for half of the essays, is what we've been talking about tonight. And here's a list of them. Essays related to the harmonistic studies. Is the Harmony of the Gospels legitimate? I said tonight, yes, it is. Histories of the Harmonies. You want to learn about how those unfolded from early times. Source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, criticism of the Gospel of John, problems and principles of harmonization, languages that Jesus spoke, and I'm kind of a maverick on that in not agreeing with everyone. Genealogies of Matthew and Luke, which we dealt with when we were in Luke 3. It's got like three or four more that I didn't have on the screen, but day and year of Christ's crucifixion. All right. That may seem really technical. We'll get a lot easier next week. But let me remind you that not only was this true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, that the grass is going to wither, flower is going to fall, you're going to die, I'm going to die, all of us are going to be gone. The Bible has promised that God has spoken, he's revealed himself, he's codified his word on paper, and it will never go away. So all of our rumblings about two-source theory, two-gospel theory, Mark without Q theory, all of that, what really matters in the end is that God has spoken a sure word. It's been proven prophetically, and we can be grateful for it. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time, and at least getting familiar with things that are going on in the ivory tower that I think are important. They have bearing, at least, on how we understand your word. May it be an encouragement to us to be good students. I know I put a lot of book titles out there. May there be someone here, at least one or two people, that have a desire to go a little bit further in this and I pray it would build confidence, not shake confidence, but build it as they continue to study your word, to get a handle on it, to understand that it is uh, remarkable. And I know this for sure, that you have given us a sure word. You've given promises to the apostles. They prove their proficiency, which is not human, but divine, in giving us something that has proven itself and the things that are to come in that prophetic word that should give us no doubt that they have spoken clearly. These promises that were made and will be fulfilled. So we look forward to the day ultimately when the biggest one will be fulfilled, and that is when you come back to take your church and establish your kingdom and usher in the eternal state. We look forward to that. As it says in the New Testament, we can't wait till the day of eternity. We look forward to that and the consummation of all things in Jesus' name. Amen.